0: Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 2, as we launch our fall ministries, as we celebrate what Christ has done and uh, in what He is doing. Aren't you thankful today that no power of hell or scheme of man can pluck you from your Father's hand? You know, there is so much craziness in the world today, but everything's going to be Okay, what a, what a beautiful picture, clasped in the hand of the Father and of the Son on top of that, holding us so secure that not even ourselves can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you're anything like me, the wretched man that Paul talks about in Romans 6 and 7, there's plenty of ways in which we fail our Savior, and He loves us anyhow and no one is able to pluck us from our Father's hand. What a glorious truth that is indeed our living hope in Christ. It is the only thing that we have. I once said it this way in a message, what else do you have to hang on to in the crazy world that you live in? What else do you have? As things get unraveled, I don't know how someone who doesn't have that hope sustains themselves. I don't know what kind of lies they have to tell themselves to believe that it's all going to be okay. We know that it's not. Christians are different, and that's what we want to celebrate today, that difference that we have in Christ alone. Well, we're in the weekend of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It brings a lot of thoughts and a lot of concerns and just a lot of stuff mind. I want to take you back almost 20 years, in fact, more than 20 years ago. I started as your interim around Easter time of the year of 2001. And I had been here just a, a few short months, and I knew what God was doing in my life. I was waiting on Him. It was the congregation's job to call the pastor. But I sensed that I knew before you knew that this is where God wanted me to be. And as God began to work and I became engaged more and more in that interim capacity at the church here, about six months into that, along came 9-11. And somehow in my mind, it just brought to the forefront that everything changed that day. I didn't understand all the extent of that change, but but I knew something changed. I, at the time, was still the vice president of student development at Davis College and had some students in my office, and we saw this unfold. And as the second plane hit the second tower, I told them in that office, we are now at war. Everything's changed. Our our lives are different from from this day forward. Little did I know, little did I know what all of that might… Entail. But that day was the final confirmation, at least for me, that I was anointed by God and called to preach the gospel. And I was so disheartened that 3,000 souls in an instant went into eternity, eternal reward or eternal judgment. And that matters. It brought a sense of urgency to, to my life and Well, just about six months later, you called me as your pastor, and lo and behold, after all these years, here I am. But I can't forget the families that were forever altered. The frailty of life, the friends that were impacted by that and would be over a course of 20 years… We had spent some time when I was at Davis College preaching down in New York City at the First Baptist Church, New York City, Broadway and 79th Avenue. Very multicultural kind of church, and uh, I enjoyed very much going down there with my family, and and they kind of took a liking to me too, and I still preach the same way I do here. And on that day, I realized that there are people in that church that I knew that I ministered to who led that battery park just outside of the towers whose lives were forever going to be changed it did something to me and although it didn't really take much consideration to the future change and cost i want you to know that we live in a drastically different world than we lived in 20 years ago who would have thought the war on terror would end up giving afghanistan back to the terrorists That we would live in a culture more concerned about social justice and critical race theory than the melting pot that was once the United States of America where people came and assimilated into the country thankful for the freedoms that they might have here. Who would have thought there would be such deep, deep political division in our culture, particularly after the the unbelievable unity 20 years ago after the events of 9-11? And who would have thought that the very people who are positions of authority to bring us together are the very ones who are creating conflict and trying to drive a wedge in between us? Who would have thought that Christians, those who believe in the sanctity of life, those who believe in the hope of the gospel and Those who believe in the sanctity of personal responsibility would now be the terrorists in America. Lots changed. Can I tell you something this morning? Your Savior hasn't. The truth hasn't. Our hope hasn't. But I sense that we need it more than we ever needed it. And maybe we always knew that we needed it, but now what else do we have? Where else do we go? What is the rest of this story? greatest disheartening in my, in my heart today is the seismic changes that have taken place in the church of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of confusion, I call it, it's being perpetrated in, in the Western civilization today. God did not save you to give you your best life today God did not save you to take away all of your problems. God did not save you to give you a charmed life where your pockets are full of money and your health is always good. I've learned that well. God saved me for His glory, and I will never know it until I see Him and become like Him. And somehow that has to factor into the way we live in a world that has gone crazy, probably 11 years ago, maybe 10 now, I had shared with the board of deacons and some of my confidence here, and perhaps I even served it or or spoke of it in, in the pulpit. I believe that we were making a transition in our culture with all of these changes, that my role somehow adjusted to begin to prepare families to sustain the spiritual walk of their lives and of their children when the church was driven underground. Some probably thought it was crazy, it'll never happen in America, it is happening before our very eyes. Are we ready? Because even if we're driven underground, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Even though we come under intense persecution, we know for a fact how all of this kind of ends. And in reality, as we keep our minds and our our, our, heart… our our hearts focused upon the truth, when we're exposed and challenged and sometimes even threatened by that truth, it prepares us for that better day and grants us the ability to live soberly and righteous in this present world. That's what 1 Peter was all about. We wrapped that up last week. And as we transition from the The book of 1 Peter, and and in the next couple of weeks transition into the second letter that Peter wrote, I thought this would be a wise stopover and transition point found in Titus chapter 2. Let me tell you what's happening here. Titus is probably on the island of Crete. He was probably saved under Paul's ministry, and he'd been left there to appoint pastors for the churches and tend to give oversight to the churches in that area. But as he was ministering on the island of Crete, that island and the culture of Rome was in a a condition of moral decay. Things were getting worse and worse and worse, kind of like when Peter wrote as well. And Paul is writing to this young pastor as the culture continually gets worse to provide encouragement and wisdom for him into how to handle the new and fresh challenges that he would face as the culture began to crumble around them and Christians would become the target. As he… as he speaks to Titus and encourages him and prepares him for what would lie ahead and its consequences, he brings in this eschatological component in the verses that perhaps you've even committed to memory, verse 11, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Yes, even in the age of moral decay, Titus, you need to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, waiting, anticipating, hoping, and praying, verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearance and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works." He says in verse 15, Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. What is he telling Titus? What is the preparation and the encouragement that He is providing to him? I want to spend some time this morning addressing that. First, let's ask the Lord to bless as we study this passage. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We cling to the promise that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We wait with great anticipation for the sound of the trumpet and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we live in a land of moral decay. We live in a culture where persecution is beginning to ramp up. We don't know what the future might be, and we don't know what we might face, but we do know that we can face it with You. We pray that as Titus receives this instruction f- from the Apostle Paul, as he, as he… shares this encouragement, as he shares this… this wisdom to how to negotiate those moral decaying times, those days of corruption and persecution, I pray too that we can glean that this morning because everything changed, and no one perhaps could have imagined how much it's changed but it's changed. Give us great comfort and hope that you're not done with us. You're not done with your church. You're not done with your people, and you're not done breathing encouragement and hope to even a hopeless situation. Maybe take the wisdom that Paul provides and affords both to Titus and those he ministered to. When you put our hearts at rest this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting things about the book of Titus is it's a distinctly personal letter. Paul is not dealing with deep theological issues. He's not attacking or confronting a theological aberration or an untruth. He's not trying to, to set the record straight. He, he's talking about, in essence, the application of the doctrinal truths that he knew Timothy knew well, and he knew that Timothy was faithful in proclaiming. You see, there comes a time in biblical Christianity where once we've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and and once we begin to learn about the Scriptures, we begin to learn about the deep truths of theology, we we have to make it make sense. We have to ask ourselves, so what does this mean? A professor even recently who said, when you read a passage of Scripture, you have to ask yourself, so what? So, so, what's the point? What, what, what are you trying to communicate? This is what Titus is communicating in this letter. He's not digging into deep theological truths to expound upon them. Paul did that in, in Romans and Ephesians and other places. He is talking from a personal level. Here's what it means in life. He is passing on how to take the truth of Scripture and in wisdom proclaim it in your life. Well, that begins with a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, an acknowledgement of your sin, an acknowledgement that the wage of sin is death, an acknowledgement that Christ sent… or God sent His Son, Christ, to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, to forgive you with with an overwhelming, abounding forgiveness, to separate you from your sin as far as the East is from the West, to… To indwell you with the ministry of His spirit and to set you on this path to live soberly and righteous in a present age while you wait for the return of your Savior. To live out that faith and that culture this morning, we were able to celebrate the proclamation of our identity in Christ. The waters of baptism don't save you, and if you have not accepted Christ as savior, you only get wet. But it's a picture that we're a different person. It's the way that we proclaim that our identity is no longer in this world. It's no longer in the old man. Whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. My identity is in Christ. That's why we ask these candidates, are you willing to make a commitment to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to proclaim that He's my King? I will live different because of this salvation. At the end of our service, as a body of believers, we will, we will get together and identify our hope in Christ. And what is that hope in Christ? That hope in Christ is through the death and burial and resurrection of His Son. You know why we can say solely? Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone? Because you didn't do this. He reached down into your life. He rescued you from your sin. He has set you on a higher place. He is making you conform to the image of His Son. He is keeping all of His promises. He will soon sound the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and the rest of them will gather together in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know why we celebrate communion? For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, and Jesus is coming again. To identify our hope in Christ is to live out that solely deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, as we recognize it's Him and Him alone who's done this. But Now we live with this difficult task of, of, of living our lives in truth somehow taking these doctrines, somehow taking this salvation, somehow tapping into the power of the Spirit, and somehow taking all of these lofty things and and fleshing them out in real life. What does all of this mean? How am I supposed to live? Famous text. How then shall we live? That's one of the reasons Paul's writing to Titus. He says, this is what this looks like. This is how this This all fleshes out, and because the recipients of Peter and the recipients of this letter in a culture of moral decay were facing some of those same things, I remind you of what Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever. And forever." And God's people said, amen. A better day is coming. He's going to ride to a rescue. He's going to set the crooked straight. He is going to fix all ills. He is going to bring right and righteousness, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Here's how Paul says it to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared. How? In Christ alone. Now there is common grace that God gives, but we are talking about the special grace that comes in Christ alone. God in his unmerited favor gave us something that we didn't deserve, and it was his own son to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross of Calvary. For the grace of God has appeared. We could even say that grace of God is appearing. Aren't you thankful for the grace that you give every get every day? the grace to just live life and to to deal with whatever comes your way, knowing that a better day is coming, this unmerited favor given to us through Christ alone. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He withheld what we really needed and deserved. He gave us by His grace His Son, and through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit through salvation, He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that we are justified by His grace, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. Paul says, I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here's what this means, Titus. This is how you negotiate this maze of life and the trouble that is upon us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us, bringing us up as children, immature, we we don't know anything, we're not sure how this fleshes out, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's just stop there for a second. He is saying, for all who are saved, He is training you to leave your former life of sin and renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to retrain yourself to live self-controlled under the direction of the Holy Spirit, upright or righteous, and godly lives in the present age, no matter how bad that gets. That is the practical aspect of of Timothy's uh, received wisdom from the great Apostle Paul who, who understood what was taking place. Listen really carefully. Our salvation is more than an escape from the consequence of sin. It involves the transformation of who we are. For too long, we've made salvation only about there. You got your ticket. You get to go to heaven now. You don't have to pay for your sin. God is just beginning at the time of salvation to rescue your damned soul. He now, through the point of salvation until the sound of the trumpet, is shaping your lives even and maybe more so when things are really difficult. you ever notice that? It's the bumps, it's the potholes, it's the struggles in life that shape us more than those times where everything seems to be going just the way we wanted it to go. There are too many people who say, yeah, I accepted the Lord as a child, but you're not a child anymore. Show, show me the money. Show me that it's real. Show me that you're being shaped and changed, and and, and show me. I'm not telling you that you're going to be perfect here. I'm going to tell you, good luck. (laughs) You know when we're going to be perfect? When we see Him, we become like Him. That's when we're going to be perfect. This is a struggle sometimes. But you need to be walking forward, not backward. And somehow, you need to learn to live out your faith in very practical ways in a pagan, pagan culture. We're to live self-controlled lives. You know that's not a suggestion, right? He's just not making a suggestion. He's saying you were rescued to live lives of self-control, rescued to live uprightly with a strong reverence for God and and who He is and what He's done. You're called to live godly lives right now in this present age. Oh, Pastor Jim, there you go again. Don't you know that Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven? Yeah, I know that well, and I'm tired of hearing that excuse. You can't keep on being who you once were if you've truly been bathed in the grace of a righteous God. He is changing you. You're not home yet. You are by far not perfect. The change is measurable. I'm a different man than I was 20 years ago. You did that to me, by the way. (laughs) No, I'm just teasing. God did that. He always does that. You know how He does it? He does it through the local church. He does it when God's people gather together like this and sit under the teaching of the Word. He does it like this when God's people gather together and celebrate the baptism of souls who have been rescued from condemnation. He does it when we gather around His table, and He reminds us, this is not about you. This is about me, and even so, I come quickly. That's how He does it. But beyond those ordinances and just moving through those motions, He does it through meaningful relationships. Just briefly, look back at verse one of Chapter Two, but, as for you now he 's talking to Titus, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He had the responsibility of teaching the Word line upon line, precept upon precept. He had the responsibility to teach sound doctrine. He was gifted, he was anointed, God gave him the ability to to understand the scripture, to expound upon to, to give that truth out to these these Christians who needed how to, to know how to live after salvation. And then, he says in verse 2, older men are to be sober minded and dignified and self controlled and sound in the faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're they're to teach what is good and and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, and Tim, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, and dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You know what, you know what Paul's doing. He says, Timothy, your job is to teach sound doctrine. The job of the church is to engage with each other and put that doctrine into practice and For those who've advanced a little bit further than others, they 're responsible to those who are lagging behind to come alongside of them and to teach them and to instruct them and to give an example to them as to how to live soberly and righteous in this present age. Unfortunately, in many of our churches, particularly the kind of churches that that, that we attend, the kind of church that we are, it is easy for that this, this notion of living the Christian life to be turned into something that is really not, we have turned teaching the truth into something academic rather than something relational. You can know all of the right answers and not know how to live. That's how we flesh it out in these relationships. That's why we come together and flesh it out in this church. God is using the local church to make us grow up, to put in front of us examples who can teach us how to live soberly and righteous in this present age. Yet… This is really important. It's impossible to train others in qualities one does not possess. That means that you need to be growing. In order that you can help your children grow and your children's children to grow. You need to be growing to come alongside of these younger people and younger in the faith, I'm talking, who just profess and have gone through the waters of baptism. Have you been past where they are right now? They're going to need your help to get to the next stage. Life is hard sometimes, right? And we do that by example and through these meaningful relationships, and we train. There has to be that training. There has to be that interaction. Jeff Myers and His text, Unanswered Questions, Rethinking Ten Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truths, tells us that, that the evidence is clear. When older and younger generations interact with one another positively, it reinvigorates the older generation and provides the younger generation with motivation. And encouragement and pro-social behavior and healthier lifestyles and greater spiritual development. That's exactly what Paul's telling Titus in chapter 2. Your job, Titus, is to teach the sound doctrine. The church needs to take some responsibility for discipleship, to be an example and to teach and to train and, and tell them how this all works with a full understanding that you're not home yet either. Sometimes our faith can become very condemning towards other people because they're not like us. And then every once in a while God reminds us, thank God they're not like you (laughs) because you're not home yet. We all make mistakes and we all stumble and fall. But that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility. That's how the church works. That's why the church has to be together. That's why the church gathered online is not the church spoken of in Scripture. Thank God that we have technology today. Thank God that we can speak to people all over the United States That's a very good and healthy thing. But listen, Christians need other Christians in their life. We need each other. Sometimes we don't like each other. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves, but but we need each other. I shared with these candidates that that I was a little bit disappointed that I couldn't get in the baptism tank this morning with them. I told them I could probably get them down, and I'm sure I could get them back up again. Do you know why this is so important and, and one of my favorite things to do? I was there once, and I can look back and recount the people who invested in my life and say, thank you, God, for godly men and women who came alongside of me. Teach me to come alongside of them, and may the body be what the body's supposed to be. What an encouraging time. They're getting, they're getting started. You've been there and done that. Share your wisdom. It's not an option. It's a responsibility, particularly in your home. but let's face it, outside of your home as well. Then, Paul says to, to Titus, I want you, Titus, to declare these things. What? Sound doctrine. That's, that's your job. Equip them. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. I want you to do encourage them in the truth, and I want you to rebuke them when they fall away from that truth. And Timothy, here's the deal. Don't let anyone disregard what you have to say. Verse 13, Paul says, well, we wait for a blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. In a nutshell, that's what it means… To live as a Christian practically every single day, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, and waiting for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has called us as His own people, who possesses us and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand, a people who are zealous to do good things, good works, to live in a decaying culture applying biblical truth so that somehow people see us as different. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one, no one disregard you. Everybody listen, because this is really important. The authority doesn't come from Titus. The authority comes from God to prepare for the moral decay and breakdown of a culture, is to lift up the Word of God in sound doctrine, to apply that Word of God in righteous living, and for all of us to encourage each other along the way, every step of the way, that it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Okay. don't let anyone think around the truth. Don't let anyone take a shortcut. Don't let anyone think that the hope of life is is beyond the church and it's beyond the gospel and the words that we hear today. The gospel is so much bigger and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. The implications of the gospel are indeed so much bigger, but the gospel is still the gospel. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. It begins and it ends with the gospel, and the glory goes to our Savior and the God of all creation. And as God's people, we live sole Deo Gloria every single day for the glory of God, consciously aware of quorum Deo, every word, every thought, every action, every intent before the face of God. That is the practical application to a group of believers who are feeling the weight of the world. Do you ever feel the weight of the world? got to take the truth and allow it to set us free. And my prayer is you can be free indeed. In the end of the day, when the mountains are shaking and falling into the midst of the sea, we must learn to be still and know that He is God. So, in this time, knowing what we know, Paul writes to Titus and says, this this is how it's done, this is how you make it happen. We need each other, we need the church, we need the Word, and it cannot be done without Christ. May He change us, may He alter our path, may He take us in a direction for His glory alone, and may He sort out everything that I'd love to sort out. You ever do? They sit in front of the TV, you know all the answers. You don't even know some of the questions. (laughs) Be still and know that He… that He is God. Let's learn to make Jesus Christ our living hope. May the peace of God rest upon us all. Thank You for Your goodness, for Your grace. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gospel. we thank You that every once in a while we get a glimpse. We're not home yet. May we never lose the longing of our soul. May the confident expectation for the sound of a trumpet never be taken from us. And may we know when it gets worse before it gets better. the day is approaching where our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming. Still, our restless souls, and may the peace of God rest upon us quorum de, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.